Good evening, everybody. It's my very great pleasure to welcome all of you to the second annual Bonchek debate. The Bonchek Institute for Rational Thought and Inquiry was created at Franklin and Marshall College to explore the questions of ethics, faith, and reason, and the essential role of rational thought and the scientific method in understanding social, economic, and political questions. That's a tall order, we know, and we knew when we created the Bonchak Institute. But we believe that it's one that must be central to the work of colleges and universities. As an institution of higher learning, our task is to explore issues in ways that are reasoned, reasonable, we hope, and critical. Our responsibility is to ensure that all sides are heard and to insist that individuals assess those sides with the best reasoning that we fallible human beings can muster. We thank the doctors, Rita and Lawrence Bonchak, for allowing us to pursue these issues in greater depth and breadth than would have been possible without their support and friendship. In addition to our annual debate, the Bonchak Institute will be initiating other programs and activities over the coming year. For instance, this spring, Peter Singer, the DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University, will launch an annual Bonchek Spring Lecture Series. Planning is also underway for student-faculty research collaborations, travel grants, faculty research grants, student internships, and an annual Bonchek Essay Competition. I think it would be very appropriate now to ask Dr. Lawrence Bonchek to come to the microphone and say a few words from the point of view of the sponsors of this wonderful debate series. Dr. Lawrence Bonchek. Thank you very much, Dick. Actually, I know the only reason Dick asked me up here is so he would have a place to sit down. I'd like to extend my personal welcome to all you intellectually curious and tolerant people. I say tolerant because no matter your point of view, chances are you will spend half of the time tonight listening to someone you don't agree with. You might like to know how tonight's topic was chosen. Last year's topic was entitled, Does Organized Religion Have the Answers to the Problems of the 21st Century? In our advance instructions to the debaters, we asked for a discussion of important global issues, such as overpopulation, environmental destruction, and most importantly, religious and ethnic hatred. In retrospect, we were, sadly, right on the mark. But Alan Keyes said at the outset that he could not predict what the problems of the 21st century would be. And those of you who were here know that the debate gradually shifted to the question of knowing what is right. The overwhelming majority of questions submitted after the debate addressed the same question. Well, we're not stupid. We aim to please and we'll give you what you want. So we're going to have a debate tonight that directly addresses the question, how can we know what is right and good? Certainly the events of September 11 point out the difficulties in this area. Some devout Christians may attribute those horrible deeds to Satan, 
but the Islamic fundamentalist terrorists are equally devout. It's just that they think we are the great Satan, and they pray to God for deliverance from us. Now, earlier I said that I thought you were a tolerant audience, but even so, we know it's very difficult for anyone to change their point of view. And I'd like to tell you a little story that illustrates that difficulty. There are two heart surgeons I know down in Atlanta named Joe and Charlie who like to go duck hunting together all the time, and they fight constantly about whose dog is the best retriever. Well, Joe had kind of had his fill of this, and he finally heard one day about a dog that could walk on water. So he went over to the next county where this dog was. He paid an exorbitant sum of money, and he brought the dog back. And that weekend, he and Charlie went hunting. Well, they went hunting down at the lake, and both of them shot some ducks down, and Charlie's dog swam out and was back in a flash with Charlie's duck. And Joe's dog went walking out across the lake and came running back on top of the water. And Joe turned to Charlie and said, Charlie, did you see that dog? What do you think of that dog? And Charlie looked at Joe, gave him a condescending look and said, Joe, your dog can't swim. (laughs) Well, I hope you're going to be more open-minded than Charlie. And now I'd like to turn the evening over to our moderator, Professor Stan Mikulak, who's director of the Center for Liberal Arts and Society at Franklin and Marshall. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Our debaters tonight will speak to the following resolution. Resolved. Goodness without God is good enough. Arguing in the affirmative is Dr. Paul Kurtz, Chairman of the Council for Secular Humanism and Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at SUNY Buffalo. Dr. Kurtz is the editor of Free Inquiry magazine and author, contributor, and editor of 30 books and over 700 essays. He has served as a fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and he is a recipient of both the John Dewey Fellowship and the Bertrand Russell Society Award. Dr. Kurtz received his B.A. from New York University and his Ph.D. from Columbia University. His most recent book, The Courage to Become, was published by Prager Greenwood Press in 1997. Welcome, Dr. Kurtz. Arguing the negative is Dr. William Lane Craig, Research Professor of Philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology. Professor Craig is also a prodigious author of books, essays, and critical reviews. This year alone, he published two books, Time and the Metaphysics of Reality and Time and Eternity, Exploring God's Relationship to Time. Dr. Craig received his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College with high honors. He obtained two master's degrees, summa cum laude, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He has a doctorate of philosophy from the University of Birmingham, England, and a doctorate of theology from the University of Munich. And Dr. Craig, we welcome you as well. Each debater will make a 15-minute opening statement, and they will follow up with eight-minute responses. 
Each then will be allowed a rebuttal of five minutes. Thus, we will have opening statements, responses, and rebuttals. After that, we will take questions from the audience that will be posed alternatively to each debater. The person answering will have two minutes to respond, and the other person will be allowed a one-minute response. Our two academic deans on my left, Dr. Joseph Volker and Dr. Fred Owens, on stage behind me, will screen the submitted questions. There are index cards on your seats. Please, as you listen to the debate, write your questions on your cards, and at an appropriate time, we will have ushers come and pick the cards. Following the question period, Dr. Kurtz and Dr. Craig will offer five-minute closing statements. Therefore, Dr. Kurtz, we call upon you to make an affirmative statement. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here under the auspices of the Bonchek Institute for Thought and Rational Inquiry, two commodities that are very rare in our society today. The topic is goodness without God is good enough. Indeed, for many individuals, it is better. A person can be moral without a belief in God. Belief in God is not sufficient to guarantee morality. It does not depend on the commandments from someone on high, but on the development of an internal moral sense, the development of moral character, particularly in the young, the growth of the capacity for moral reasoning. Now, millions of Americans do not accept a belief in a personal God. They do not practice a religion or they may only be nominal members of a particular denomination. They may be agnostics, skeptics, secular humanists, atheists, or just plain backsliders. But they do not, but they do believe very deeply in morality. Today, uh, they are the last repressed minority in America. They need to come out of the closet and be appreciated, for they have much to offer to this country. They, too, are patriots. God and patriotism are not synonymous. Unbelievers trace their lineage back through the history of thought, from Greece and Rome, through the Renaissance, modern science, the Enlightenment, the democratic revolutions of our time, and they've been involved in those great movements. They represent many of the heroes and heroines of human civilization. Many of them are precursors of modern secular humanism. Socrates, Epicurus, Hume, Kant, Darwin, Freud, the founders of this great republic, Madison, Franklin, Jefferson and Paine, deists but not theists, and in the modern world, John Dewey, Bertrand Russell, Madame Curie, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Margaret Sanger, Mark Twain, yes, Mark Twain, Robert Ingersoll, Thomas Edison, Francis Crick, Isaac Asimov, Carl Sagan, the list is very long indeed. Many of these individuals have led exemplary lives of nobility and excellence, and they've contributed to the social good. They were kind or are kind, considerate, altruistic, caring, interested in improving the human condition, 
They have a deep sense of responsibility and goodwill. They lived creative lives as scientists, poets, artists, ordinary men and women in our midst. They, can, they have been able to uh, exercise self-discipline, self-respect. They're well-motivated. They are self-actualizers. Indeed, today it may be a surprise to people here that 60% of American scientists are unbelievers, according to a recent poll. 93% of the National Academy of Sciences and many Nobel Prize winners. 39% of Americans are unchurched. Now, all of this is drowned out today by the propagandists for religion who maintain that a person cannot be moral unless he or she believes in a personal God. And if you look at the fruits of modern society, of our democracy, of science and technology, and all of the goods that have accrued from these free thinkers and unbelievers who believe deeply in aiding humanity, the tale is very impressive indeed. And the best illustration is modern medical science, which has improved the human condition, improved health, reduced suffering and pain, and uh, uh, led to happiness. America is an anomaly. When you travel around the world, as I do, and you see American contrast, we are in, indeed truly religious. I agree. But in contrast with Europe, for example, and many of the other democracies, this is startling. According to a recent poll at the University of Michigan, 31.7% of people in Great Britain do not believe in God. 41.7% in Norway, 48% in France, 53% in Sweden, 57% in Japan. And indeed, in many of these countries of the world, less than 10% of the population attend religious prayer meetings or are active in their churches, synagogues, mosques, or temples. Yet, according to this recent poll, is life meaningful without belief in God? 61% in France say yes, 57% in Britain, 59% in Germany, 67% in Japan. Thus, non-religious people have contributed enormously to the modern world, and they constitute hundreds of millions of people worldwide. Interesting that many of these democratic countries have a high quality of life, less crime, and less violence than in the United States. Indeed, one can even argue that religion is often an impediment to morality. Now, I do recognize, of course, that religions do have positive consequences, and they may give consolation. Indeed, they do and hope to people, and they can arouse charitable instincts and goodwill. But on the other hand, religion often has negative consequences. Many people say, if you don't believe in God, then you cannot be good. What do you mean by God? The definitions differ. From the fatherhood of God, you can deduce contradictory moral imperatives. 
For example, are you for monogamy? Catholics are for monogamy and against divorce. Protestants are for monogamy and for divorce. Are you for polygamy? Muslims are for polygamy. Yet all three claim to believe in God. Do you believe in capital punishment? The Catholic bishops of the United States are against it. Virtually all the Western democracies are against it. Yet Protestant fundamentalists, President Bush, and Muslims are for capital punishment. And so you can go down the list. Do you believe in birth control and contraception, euthanasia? What is the position of women and gays? And you find that the religions disagree Basically. Now, if you then reject religious commandments as a basis for a belief in God, where do you turn? I think that the, the humanist, and ever since the Renaissance, humanism has been developing, the humanist believes that happiness here and now is our basic good, not salvation in the afterlife or the next life. This life is not simply a preparation for some future eternal immortality. It is good in itself, and so we ought to seek creative joy. We ought to actualize our potentialities. We ought to achieve excellence. For the secular humanists, life is meaningful. What is the meaning of life, says the theist, without God? Life presents us with opportunities. The meaning of life is what we invest we are in control of our own destiny. Self-determinism is very, very important. Thus, there is a kind of autonomy of the moral consciousness. It is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of every individual that we seek. Not only of every individual, but of a social good. And so, secular humanists and non-believers who believe in ethics believe that responsibility is very important our responsibility to others. They're keenly aware of our responsibility to our children, our parents, our sisters and brothers, our relatives, our colleagues, members of our community, our country, and indeed also to the planetary habitat which we occupy and to the principles of social justice. Now, I submit that human beings are potentially moral, that the nature of the human being is such that he or she is capable of performing moral behavior and of making moral choices, of being good and right. This depends, of course, upon social conditions. It depends upon moral education. And so it's very important that we cultivate and nourish in the young the capacity for morality. Under these conditions, it is possible to develop a sense of empathy for other human beings, a caring feeling for other human beings. And as we proceed in life, we see that there are moral dilemmas that we face, that we cannot depend on absolute principles, which are inviolable and unchangeable, according to many religions, but that what we do depends on the context and the situations in which we make choices. In other words, what we ought to do depends upon a rational investigation of the alternatives and a choice or decision in the light of the consequences. Young children learn what they ought and ought not to do, and they learn from experience. And adults learn from experience. 
And so there is a developed moral sensibility that does not depend upon authority or mere commandment, but is able to make choices in the light of a rational investigation. Often our choices are difficult. Often we face problems, and there is a choice not between good and, and bad, right and wrong, but between two goods or two evils. And so morality is very basic to the whole human condition. And a morally developed person is sensitive to the nuances, to the difficulties, and the problems that we face. And his choice grows out of lived experience. You can never rest upon absolute principles handed on down. You have to rest in the last analysis upon the development a kind of, of a kind of reflective intelligence. You live and learn, and you learn by living. You live and learn and change in the light of experience. And that is particularly true in the modern world, where social change is so rapid, where there is a class of cultures, where different religious traditions at, are at odds with each other, and where there are no easy solutions. And so what better method than a method of rational inquiry where we weigh alternatives in the balance. What better method than a method of negotiation and compromise, where we try to understand the point of view of the other person, and where we try to work out, as best we can, principles that seem adequate for the current world. I submit that we cannot look back to the ancient documents, the Bible or the Koran. We cannot look back to our nomadic and rural forebearers who wrote those eloquent documents that expressed the experience of that age, the scientific, the literary, and the moral outlook. We have to look ahead to the future, to the modern world and to the world of the future. This post-industrial information global world is unlike anything we have seen. And thus, the best method for solving moral problems is the method of intelligence. We need to develop in the world, I submit, particularly in the present moment, where there is a conflict and clash of civilizations and of religious traditions. We need to look beyond these intransigent, intolerant positions of the past and develop a new planetary humanism that transcends the ancient dogmas that divide people. Can we find common ground? Ah, that is the, the, the great question. Is it possible to find moral principles in which we can agree upon? It seems to me that people of goodwill, dedicated to realizing the best of which we're capable, need to work together to do this. And so the old battle lines and the battlegrounds of the past must be left behind us. We must be able to move to a new plateau, a new plateau in which morality is truly meaningful, in which it is global, and in which all human beings can participate. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We will now hear the negative. Thank you. Good evening. I want to begin by thanking the Center for the Liberal 
Arts and Society, as well as the Bonchek Institute, for the extraordinary privilege of taking part in this important debate this evening. My wife and I were absolutely riveted to C-SPAN for last year's debate. And I think I can assure you that today's uh, debate will be conducted with much more decorum and goodwill, uh, though hopefully it will be just as interesting. Now, let me say at the outset as clearly as I can that I agree that a person can be moral without belief in God. But that's not the topic under debate this evening. We're not talking about goodness without belief in God, but rather goodness without God. And when Professor Kurtz says goodness without God is good enough, he's raising in a provocative way the question of the basis of moral values. In his recent book, he helpfully distinguishes three answers to this question. Theism maintains that moral values are grounded in God. Humanism maintains that moral values are grounded in human beings. And nihilism maintains that moral values have no ground at all and are therefore ultimately illusory and non-binding. This analysis is attractive because it helps us to see that Dr. Kurtz is engaged in a struggle on two fronts, on the one side against the theist and on the other side against the nihilist. This is important because it helps us to understand that humanism is not a default position. That is to say, if the theist is wrong, that does not mean that the humanist is right. For if God does not exist, maybe it's the nihilist who is right. In order to carry his case, Dr. Kurtz must defeat both the theist and the nihilist. In particular, he must show that in the absence of God, nihilism would not be true. With that in mind, I'm going to defend two basic contentions in tonight's debate. Number one, if theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. And two, if theism is false, we do not have a sound foundation for morality. Let's look at that first contention together. If theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. Here I wish to make three subpoints. First, if theism is true, we have a sound basis for objective moral values. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is good or evil independently of whether anybody thinks so. It's to say, for example, that the Holocaust was morally evil, even though the Nazis who carried it out thought that it was good. On the theistic view, objective moral values are rooted in God. He is the locus and source of moral value. God's own holy and loving nature supplies the absolute standard against which all actions are measured. He is by nature loving, generous, just, faithful, kind, and so forth. And thus, if God exists, objective moral values exist. Second, if theism is true, we have a sound basis for objective moral duties. To say that we have objective moral duties is to say that we have certain moral obligations regardless of whether we think so or not. On the theistic view, God's moral nature is expressed toward us in the form of divine commands, which constitute our moral duties. Far from being arbitrary, these commands flow necessarily 
from his moral nature. On this foundation, we can affirm the objective goodness and rightness of love, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality, and condemn as objectively evil and wrong selfishness, hatred, abuse, discrimination, and oppression. Third, if theism is true, we have a sound basis for moral accountability. On the theistic view, God holds all persons accountable for their actions. Evil and wrong will be punished. Righteousness will be vindicated. Despite the inequities of this life, in the end, the scales of God's justice will be balanced. We can even undertake acts of extreme self-sacrifice, which run contrary to our self-interest, knowing that in the end these acts are not empty and ultimately meaningless gestures. Thus, the moral choices that we make in this life are infused with an eternal significance. So I think it's evident that if God exists, the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability is secured. Theism, therefore, provides a sound foundation for morality. That brings us to my second contention. If theism is false, we do not have a sound foundation for morality. Here again, let me make three sub-points. First, if theism is false, why think that human beings are the basis of objective moral values? Dr. Kurtz thinks that human flourishing is the be-all and end-all of human life. But if there is no God, what reason is there to regard human flourishing as in any way significant? After all, on the atheistic view, there's nothing special about human beings. They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. As Dr. Kurtz himself writes, the human species is only one among many of the life forms that have emerged on Earth. The discoveries of Copernicus and Darwin have undermined the belief that we are fundamentally different from all other species. He muses that many people still refuse to accept the full implications of these discoveries. They still seek to find a special place for the human species in the scheme of things. Ironically, however, it is precisely the humanists themselves who seek to find a special place for the human species in the scheme of things, who refuse to accept the full implications of reducing human beings to just another animal species. For humanists continue to treat human beings as morally special in distinction to all other species. What justification is there for this differential treatment? On an atheistic view, moral values are just byproducts of sociobiological evolution, just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative and even altruistic sacrificial behavior because evolution has determined it to be advantageous in the struggle for survival. So their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, exhibit similar behavior for the same reason. As Michael Roos, a philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation, 
no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. As a result of sociobiological pressures, there has emerged among Homo sapiens a sort of herd morality which functions well in the perpetuation of our species in the struggle for survival. But on the atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything about Homo sapiens that makes this morality objectively true. To think that human beings are special is to be guilty of speciesism. That is to say, an unjustified bias toward one's own species. Thus, if there is no God, then any basis for regarding the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens as objectively true seems to have been removed. Some actions, say rape, may not be biologically or socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to show that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong about raping someone. Such behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. If, as Dr. Kurtz states, the moral principles that govern our behavior are rooted in habit and custom, feeling and fashion, then the rapist who chooses to flout the herd morality is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. So if theism is false, it's hard to see what basis remains for the affirmation of objective moral values, and in particular of the special value of human beings. It's not at all clear to me why, if theism is false, humanism would be true rather than nihilism. Second, if theism is false, then what is the basis for objective moral duties? On the atheistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations to one another. The ethicist Richard Taylor illustrates the point. He invites us to imagine human beings living in a state of nature without any laws or customs. Suppose one of them kills another and takes his goods. Taylor reflects on this. Such actions, though injurious to their victims, are no more unjust or immoral than they would be if done by one animal to another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it but does not murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first takes it, but does not steal it. For none of these things is forbidden, and exactly the same considerations apply to the people we are imagining. Why think that if God does not exist, we would have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what? imposes these moral duties upon us. As Taylor says, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but the meaning is gone. Thus, if atheism is true, it becomes impossible to condemn war, terrorism, or crime 
as evil, nor can one praise brotherhood, equality, or love as good. It doesn't matter what you choose, for there is no right and wrong. Good and evil do not exist. So if theism is false, it's very hard to understand what basis remains for objective moral duties. Why wouldn't nihilism, which holds that there is no right and wrong, be true, rather than humanism? Finally, third, if theism is false, what is the basis for moral accountability? Even if there were objective moral values and duties under atheism, they seem to be irrelevant because there's no moral accountability. As Dr. Kurtz writes, there is no cosmic prospect for the human species. There is no metaphysical basis for hope. But if life ends at the grave, it makes no difference whether one has lived as a Stalin or as a saint. As the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky rightly said, if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. Given the finality of death, it really does not matter how you live. Acts of self-sacrifice become particularly inept on an atheistic worldview. For such altruistic behavior is then merely the result of evolutionary conditioning, which helps to perpetuate the species. A firefighter rushing into a burning building to save people in danger, or a policeman who sacrifices his life for those of his comrades, does nothing more praiseworthy, morally speaking, than an ant which sacrifices itself for the sake of the ant heap. On an atheistic view, this is just stupid. We should resist the sociobiological pressures to such self-destructive behavior and choose instead to act in our own best self-interest. The absence of moral accountability from the philosophy of atheism thus makes an ethic of compassion and self-sacrifice a hollow abstraction. R.C. Friedman, a philosopher at the University of Toronto, concludes, without religion, the coherence of an ethic of compassion cannot be established. The principle of respect for persons and the principle of the survival of the fittest are mutually exclusive. In summary, Professor Kurtz has not, I think, shown theological foundations to be dispensable when it comes to morality. We've seen that if theism is true, we have a sound foundation for objective moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. On the other hand, if theism is false, then it's very hard to see what basis remains for the affirmation of objective moral values, duties, and accountability. In short, it's hard to see why nihilism would not be true. In that case, goodness without God is not good enough. And now we move to our rebuttal. Dr. Kurtz, please. Thank you very much. Professor Craig, you have conceded my main point. You've admitted that you can be moral without belief in God. If uh, God is essential, then how is it essential for the millions and millions of people who don't believe in God in your sense, namely a Christian God, and yet behave morally 
and ethically. So that's the first point. Second, can you hear in the back? <laughs> second, yes. Okay, the second point. The alternatives are not theism versus humanism or nihilism. There are surely many other alternatives beside that. I mean, many, many people, millions of people, have been optimistic about life, have lived the full life, have find life exciting and exuberant and significant. And they don't wring their hands about whether or not there is an immortal life. It's living life here and now that counts. And if you reject theism, if you're a skeptic, you can still lead the good life fully, and it does not lead to despair. They tell the story of uh, Woody Allen, who laid awake at nights worrying whether or not the sun would burn down in five billion years. Okay, you leave light, you live the full life in spite of that. A life of uh, actualization, a life of peace and prosperity, a life of love and excitement. The richness of life is so very important that I don't see where nihilism follows. It may follow for you, but it's not the option for other people. Now you say you're a theist. But which God? And what did God command? The uh, Islamic martyrs who slammed their plane into the world trade towers, saying, Allah Akbar, God is great, as they die for belief in God. And we in America sing, God bless America. The German army going to war, saying, Gut mit uns, and the French army, mon Dieu, mon Dieu, believing in the same God, yet leading to different contradictory uh, results. So that doesn't solve the matter. Even if everyone believed in God, you still have these powerful moral disagreements and moral disputes. Now, the Christian God says, ah, yes, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. In your writings, that is what you argue for. But the question I would ask you, would the Hindu and the Muslim and the Jew and the Buddhist and the non-believer be saved? The world is made up of six billion people, and there are many others who are not Christians. And it, would life be meaningful for them in this, this scheme of events? Now, you say that God is the only objective basis for morality, that this universe is created by God, and it manifests his justice and righteousness, his love for us, how do you explain the dying of 6,000 innocent people at the World Trade Towers? How and why did a loving God permit that to happen? The universe is as we find it, and we try to live the best life we can and we use our best intelligence and goodwill to solve our problems and live together. But to postulate an ethical God who nonetheless allows evil to exist is the Achilles heel of the classical notion of an omnipotent God. Now you add, you ask, why should we favor the human species? This is human speciesism. Yes, it is indeed. We are human beings. We love one another. Our whole life is tied up with our relationship to our fellow and sister human beings. 
and we have responsibilities and obligations that will develop and that do develop and that we live by. And uh, humanists and others who don't accept your theistic view are willing to make sacrifices to die for others, to do what they can. It seems to me that altruism and empathy and compassion is very basic to the human species, as it is to some other species, but not to the extent that it is for the human species. And so we don't have to say, we surely cannot say, that if God did not exist, then we would be moral despots, that then whatever a Stalin do is, or whatever a Hitler does makes no difference. It is not a question of mere taste and subjectivity. There are objective standards that we can use. Now, these standards are relative uh, to human interests and needs, and these standards uh, develop over a period of time. There is an evolution through human history and human civilization, and a whole number of basic moral principles have emerged. Surely, the theist does not have a monopoly on moral virtue and moral principles. And surely there have been other people on this planet throughout the long history of the human species that have been deeply concerned of moral obligation, moral obligation, moral justice, the goods and needs of others. So it seems to me that you've libeled so many people who believe in doing human good, who believe that life is intrinsically worthwhile, who believe that we have a moral obligation to our fellow human beings, and who believe that we ought to make sacrifices to them. And for you to say that unless we accept your definition of God and your definition of theism, that we cannot be moral is simply false and untrue. Indeed, let me turn the tables and let me, let me submit to you that if the reason why you're moral is because you believe in God, then you've not developed the full dimensions of the human personality. I postulated that there is a tendency, a potentiality, for developing a moral appreciation for others, for realizing a moral uh, virtues. Under proper conditions, this will develop. It is absent in some individuals, sociopaths, and so we have laws in order to regulate human society and accountability. But these laws are no substitute, no substitute for morality itself. And so uh, human beings will develop moral sensibilities. If you say that you will not develop these sens moral sensibilities, that they would not exist, that they cannot be internalized, that we would be cruel and crude, and that we would ignore the interests and needs of other people unless we believe in God, then you lack moral development in itself. Moral development is autonomous. Moral, moral principles are part of what we are as human beings. They define us as human beings. And therefore, to say that if we don't accept your religious doctrine that you end up as nihilist, immoral nihilist, is false, untrue, and immoral. Thank you very much. And now we have a rebuttal from Dr. Craig, please. We've agreed in tonight's debate that a belief in God is not essential to living a moral life. 
But my argument is that without the existence of God, there would not be moral values, moral duties, or moral accountability in any objective sense. Dr. Kurtz asks, well, if you can live a moral life without belief in God, then how is God essential? Well, very simply, without God, there is no foundation, I believe, and have argued, for objective values, duties, and accountability. Dr. Kurtz himself writes in his book, uh, Forbidden Fruit, the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation, that is to say, their basis in reality. If they are neither derived from God nor anchored in some transcendent ground, are they purely ephemeral? That's the question that is before us this evening. And Dr. Kurtz must show that in the absence of God, human beings would, in fact, have intrinsic moral value, moral duties, and he must supply some sort of moral accountability. And I don't think that he can do that. That's why God is essential to provide a foundation or a a basis for the affirmation of these elements of the moral life. Why is this important? Well, because it's not obvious to me that if God doesn't exist, that humanism would be true. On the contrary, it seems very plausible to think that if God does not exist, nihilism would be true. And this is important because Dr. Kurtz admits in his book that nihilism is not enough for the foundation of the moral life. He writes, no one can consistently live his or her life under the domination of such an attitude, that is, nihilism. So it is impossible to live the individual moral life from a nihilistic view. Also, it undermines the moral fabric of society. He writes, common moral decencies lay down moral imperatives necessary for group cohesion and survival. So if uh, nihilism is true, we lack those uh, objective moral principles uh, that is necessary for the moral fabric of society. So I think it's critical in tonight's debate that Dr. Kurtz address the question, why, if there is no God, wouldn't nihilism be true? Now, I argued two things in my first speech. First, that if theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. Dr. Kurtz didn't dispute that if theism is true, there would be objective moral values, objective moral duties, and moral accountability. But he did bring in several red herrings, I think, to try to distract us from the central issue. He said, for example, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Notice that this is a question about the existence of God, and we're not arguing that here tonight. This is not a debate on the existence of God. My claim is a conditional one. If theism is true, then we have a sound foundation for morality. So even if he is right, that wouldn't prove that uh, God would not be a sound foundation for morality if theism is true. Secondly, in addition to that, I would simply say that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil and suffering in the world, and then it's going to be Dr. Kurtz that bears the burden of proof to show that that's either impossible or improbable. So I don't think that the problem of evil is at the heart of the debate tonight. It's a red herring. Similarly, it's also a red herring to say, well, which God exists and what does he command? These are questions of moral epistemology, not moral ontology. That is to say, these are questions about how we know the good or how we discover God's commands, but they are not about what is the basis, the ontological foundation for moral values, duties, and so forth. Indeed, I would say once we have arrived at the conclusion that if theism is true, you have an objective basis for morality, then it's very important to find out which God exists. Because as Dr. Kurtz said, not all gods are the same. There are some religions in the world that have very vicious concepts of God. 
And so it's important for us to discover which theism is true. But that's a secondary question to the one that faces us tonight. So I don't think that Dr. Kurtz has said anything to refute my first contention, that if theism is true, then we have a sound foundation for objective moral values, duties, and moral accountability. Now, what about my second contention, that if theism is false, there's no sound foundation for morality? I asked him, what is the basis of objective moral values if there is no God? Human beings are just like other animal species. He says, well, uh, that doesn't mean if God doesn't exist that we would all be despots. There can be standards which are relative to human needs and desires. Right. They're relative to human needs and desires, and therefore they are not unconditional, objective, categorical moral principles or standards. There's no more reason to think that these, uh, this herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens as a result of the evolutionary process is objectively true than to think that, say, guinea pig morality or, or horse morality, which is relative to the needs and values of those species, would be objectively true. The question is why think that human beings and their values uh, are special on uh, an atheistic view, and I don't think he's been able to give us one. Peter Haas, in his book Morality After Auschwitz, uh, uses Nazi Germany as an illustration of the problem we face. He points out that far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators of the Holocaust acted in strict conformity with an ethic that held that however difficult or unpleasant the task might have been, the mass extermination of the Jews and gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong, and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and even good. Moreover, Haas points out, because of its internal consistency and coherence, the Nazi ethic couldn't be discredited from within. It could only be pronounced false if you have a transcendent vantage point from which you can transcend socio-cultural relativism and say that this society's values uh, are, are wrong. They are objectively wrong. But on humanism, there isn't any basis for that because moral values are simply the spin-offs of socio-cultural evolution, and there's no way to judge that one is objectively right and one is objectively wrong. Similarly, with objective moral duties, we saw that animals don't have moral obligations to each other. Massimo Piliucci, who is a biologist, writes, what we call homicide or rape or even infanticide is very, very common among different types of animals. Lions, for example, commit infanticide on a regular basis. Now, are these kinds of acts to be condoned, he asks? I don't even know what that means because the lion doesn't understand what morality is. Morality is an invention of human beings. There is no such thing, he says, as objective morality. So if moral values are simply inventions of human beings rooted in sociobiological evolution, there's no reason to think that we're obligated to, uh, to follow it. Similarly, in any case, there's no basis for moral uh, accountability on atheism for these moral values and duties. The thing that is important about moral accountability is that it makes our moral choices significant. In the absence of moral accountability, our choices become trivialized because they make no ultimate contribution to either the betterment of the, uh, of the universe or the moral good in general because everyone ends up the same. Death is the great leveler. So it seems to me that Dr. Kurtz still faces this crucial challenge to show us why, if there is no God, 
humanism would be true rather than nihilism. The third round, a round of rebuttal, and then we will take questions from the audience. Dr. Kurtz. I think that uh, the world has battled a long time to get a separation of religion and science. And science can only proceed when we could not or need not find occult explanations. Similarly, the battle between religion and politics is ongoing. And democracies, democracies can only develop where there is a separation of church and state and political judgments are made independent of religion. The battleground now is to see whether or not religion and morality can be distinguished and whether or not we can make moral judgments independent of religion. Now, I, I submit that we can and we do. Indeed, there's a great tradition in Western civilization tracing it from Aristotle through Kant down to the present time, in which it is clear that there's an autonomy of moral judgments, that people can make wise decisions. There is a field known as uh, practical wisdom, and a, a man or a woman, a child, uh, can learn how to make decisions in concrete situations. He or she does not have to refer to God. If Johnny hits Mary and uh, Johnny's mother says, don't hit Mary, what is the, what, why, why should he not hit Mary? Because God exists? No. If you hit Mary, she'll hit you back. Uh, she won't like you. Uh, you won't have any friends if you continue this. In other words, the child needs reasons for growth and development. And that is who and what we are as moral beings. We are moral beings. We're capable of that. And that's the whole basis of the society. And to say that in order to solve a moral dilemma or to teach moral virtue, you need to believe in God simply is not true, and it's not true in specific cases. Now, you say theism is an adequate foundation, but you've not answered my question. Who's theism? This varies from culture to culture. If you look at the history of uh, human civilization, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Jihad, the conflicts today in Northern Ireland and Bosnia and the Middle East, all over the world. It's the conflict of people who believe in God, and yet the belief in God does not enable them to solve these moral problems. I believe in God, yes, and so we will kill you in the name of God. I mean, that is a basic problem. God does not provide an adequate foundation for moral choices. If you're going to deal with moral choices, you have to deal with human experience. You test principles by their consequences. You evaluate alternatives in the balance. You examine means and ends to achieve your goals. You uh, confront various values and you try to work out by negotiation and compromise. In the present world, we need to negotiate our differences and to work out common set of values which will uh, enable us uh, uh, to move ahead. Now, you ask, why should we prefer the human species over and above other species? Well, we are humans, and we love one another. We can. We live with one another. Morality is human. 
you say, ah, this morality is created in the image of man and it is insufficient. Well, I submit that theism is created in the image of man, that human beings create gods. If lions had gods, they would be lion-like in character, that religions are relative to social conditions and historical epochs, and merely to say that there is God and God will tell us what to do uh, does not answer the question. You claim that uh, we need a doctrine of salvation in order to judge this life. I find no evidence for salvation, no evidence that with the death of the body, the spirit or the soul lives on. This is simply an article of faith. And your religious morality in the last analysis is based on your religious faith. It seems to me that it's important that we go beyond faith and we try to work out our moral differences and agreements on rational grounds. So it's reason, not faith, that is the method by which our moral differences can be resolved. Thank you. Dr. Craig. Well, of course, my appeal tonight has been precisely to reason and not to faith. I've argued two things. First, that if theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. We have objective moral values, objective moral duties in the divine commands, and moral accountability. And Dr. Kurtz hasn't disputed any of those points. Instead, what he's done is brought up red herrings. For example, he says, we can make moral judgments uh, in the absence or independent of religion. Of course we can. I agree with that. You don't need to believe in God in order to recognize that you ought to love your children rather than torture them. But the question is, what is the ontological foundation of that objective moral duty that we all sense? And that is, as he said, the central ethical question that needs to be addressed. Um, He also says, again, well, what about if Johnny hits Mary? Uh, What happens then? The point is, why is it wrong for Johnny to hit Mary? This kind of thing goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. Remember, we saw that there's even infanticide. Uh, lions and other animals eat their offspring. So why is it that it's objectively morally wrong for human homo sapiens to behave in these ugly ways toward one another? On an atheistic view, we're just primates. And I can't see anything wrong with primates doing these kind of things to each other, given atheism. And again, Dr. Kurtz asked, well, whose theism? That's not the question here tonight. That's the secondary question. If we do see that uh, there is not an adequate foundation for morality in the absence of God, then we need to go and ask the question, well, which God exists? Now, I'm a Christian theist, so let me lay out Christian theism then as my foundation for uh, morality, and Dr. Kurtz can tell us then what's wrong with Christian theism in terms of objective moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. So I don't think he said anything to show that... um, Theism is inadequate as a foundation for morality. Now, my second point, and I think more important, is that if theism is false, I just don't see any foundation for morality on his view. What is the basis on atheism for objective moral value? He says, well, it's just because we are human. Yeah, but why think that human beings are special? Why is this primate species special instead of chimpanzees or or bonobos? Imagine that an extraterrestrial race came from another planet who are superior to us in intelligence as we are to pigs and cows. 
and began to farm the earth and use us as food and laboring animals. What could the atheist say to show them that human beings have intrinsic moral value, that you oughtn't to do this to human beings? They would say your values and principles are just the blind off-product of the evolutionary process that spawned you. It has no objectivity, has no binding force upon us. So I can't see any reason to think that this prejudice in favor of the human species is justified on atheism. He tries to turn the, the tables in by saying, but I say theism is just created. Maybe it is. That's not the debate tonight. Remember, my claim is a conditional claim. If theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. I'd be happy to come back to uh, F&M again for another debate on the question of the existence of God and present good reasons, I think, to believe that theism is true. But for tonight's debate, it's sufficient to defend that conditional claim that if theism is true, we have a sound foundation for morality. If theism is false, there isn't any foundation for the affirmation of objective moral values, for the existence of moral duties. Where do those come from on atheism? or for moral accountability and acts of self-sacrifice. In short, I personally think that, that humanism is just utterly intellectually bankrupt. It has no basis for the affirmation of the moral values that we all, I think, sense are true. They have the right values. We all believe in the intrinsic value of human beings and in love for one another and cooperative behavior. But what the theist can offer the humanist is a foundation, a secure foundation for the affirmation of those values that we all hold dear and want to cling to. And therefore, I would like to challenge Professor Kurtz tonight to consider becoming a believer in God. I think that if he will believe in God and uh, put God into his metaphysic, into his ontology, it will give him a foundation for those very humanistic values that he wants to affirm and that we as Christian theists also affirm. Now we have a big problem. Please keep your seats. If you get up and start walking around, I'll never get you back together. What I'd like you to do if you have a question and you've written the question down, hold it high and one of the ushers will bring it to you our deans will play solitaire for a few minutes, and we'll get back as quickly as possible. If you get up and start walking around, we're going to wait a long time. So please, if you have questions, hold them up for the ushers to get. Thank you. I have two minutes to respond, and Dr. Craig will have one minute to rebut. Dr. Kurtz, can you define the difference between humanism and self-interest? between humanism and self-interest. Surely, theories of uh, self-interest have been proposed in the history of thought, and they argue that all individuals make choices related to their own interest. And that is undoubtedly true about many choices that we make. We're concerned with our own good and well-being, our career, our happiness, our future life. However, there is something more than self-interest, and that involves altruism. Now, I submit that we're also capable of altruism potentially. We can care for other human beings. We can express empathy and compassion. We can see the other human's point of view, and we can help the other person. So humanism is more than self-interest. It involves that, obviously. 
we have to be concerned with our own self-determination and our own well-being. But we develop our humanity when we're concerned with the needs and, and, and interests in others. And thus, uh, humanism involves the full-scale flowering of the human person as an individual with freedom and autonomy, but also as a social being living in a community, loving, working with others, and trying to work for the common social good. The problem with altruism on an atheistic worldview is that altruistic behavior is simply the evolutionary conditioning of the selfish gene to perpetuate the species. John Hick, my doctoral father, asks us to uh, imagine a fighter ant which is endowed with the insights of sociobiology and freedom of the will, and he feels the pressures of instinct leading him to sacrifice himself for the ant heap. But then he asks himself, why should he give up his existence for those of a million, million other ants? After all, they're just ants, just matter in motion. Why wouldn't he rather choose his own life, his own existence? That's all he will ever have. Now, why should human beings choose any different on an atheistic worldview? I can't see any basis for altruistic behavior. It seems to me that the rational thing to do on atheism would simply be to look out for your own self-interest rather than adopt a humanistic point of view. Can I respond to that? No? Okay. <laughs> We're going to try to do the rule. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's all. Dr. Craig. But question for Dr. Craig. If God exists... How do we know that he isn't vicious, jealous, uncaring, or evil, just because you say so? Well, obviously, that wouldn't be a very good reason for thinking, just because I say so. Rather, I think uh, St. Anselm rightly saw that the very concept of God is the concept of the greatest conceivable being. And therefore, the very notion of God is a being which is worthy of worship, which has all of the great-making perfections. And this would include things like omnipotence, omniscience, uh, everlastingness, and it would also include moral perfection. So that by definition, to be a being worthy of worship, God would have to be the locus and source of unalloyed and absolutely pure moral value and goodness. Any being which was tainted with evil or in any way wicked would not be the greatest conceivable being and therefore would not be God. So by the very definition of what we're talking about, God, if he exists, will be the locus and source of absolute moral value. Otherwise, he wouldn't be worthy of worship and therefore would not be, in fact, God. You would be talking about some lesser creature. You're assuming what you mean to prove. This is merely an article of faith. Your God, for your God, he's all good. But why should we accept that? I mean, that is true by definition. Actually, does your God permit only some people to be saved? What about people who do not believe in him? Will they go to hell? I asked you that question before, and you never responded to that. What about the non-Christian? What is their place in the scheme of things? What about the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, who is vindictive and hateful? And again, you haven't, raised, you haven't answered that question. If God exists and he's perfect and omniscient, as you assume, based on your faith, then why does he permit evil? I can see no sufficient reason of God to allow innocent people, as in the World Trade Towers. You didn't respond to that. 
to die a cruel death, innocent people. Dr. Kurtz, while you're there. Question. Does human morality differ from culture to culture? Human moralities do vary from culture to culture. There's a whole history of uh, sociological and anthropological research which shows this great diversity, yes. On the other hand, there are common human needs, I submit, common human interests. We all, all are members of the same species. We face similar problems, and as a result, common values develop. Now, I've postulated in my book, Forbidden Fruit, the common moral decencies, to tell the truth, to keep promises, to be honest and sincere, to not harm innocent people, to be tolerant and just. And I think that those virtues and values are widely shared in human culture today. They are a product of civilization. In the past, many of these values and virtues had to be learned and fought for. And so it's taking a long time to liberate women from the patriarchal patriarchal domination by men. It's taken a long time to liberate human beings uh, from slavery, which was condoned in the, in the Bible. Uh, so there is a progression and evolution of human values. And uh, so it seems to me that uh, through the history of civilization, and particularly in the 20th century, we have, where we have developed a set of human rights and where people throughout the globe, no matter what the religious background, believe that there are common human rights. This shows that in spite of the diversity, there is still a common framework. But I think morality needs to constantly change, and it can only change in the light of inquiry. So there is a kind of a modification of morality in the light of uh, new knowledge of the sciences, new evidence, and morality must be open to growth and uh, development. Dr. Craig. On a theistic view, as we grow morally, we can discover uh, new moral insights and, and values that we didn't appreciate before. But on atheism, you see, this moral evolution is impossible to call an improvement because there isn't any objective standard by which you could judge that the later stage of evolution is better than the earlier. For example, the ancient Greeks practiced infanticide regularly. In India, before British colonization, women were expected to be burned alive on the funeral pyres of their husbands. Now, why do we say that those values were worse than the values that we hold in Western democratic society today on an atheistic worldview? All evolution shows is change but it doesn't give you any objective standard by which you can evaluate one as better than the other. It's all socio-culturally relative, and we're not in a position to condemn the ancient Greeks or the pre-colonized Indians for their practices and their beliefs. Isn't it true that throughout history, religion's morality was an outgrowth of the situation in that era? For example, slavery was accepted in the Bible and in the U.S. in the 19th century. Yes, I think that, that's right. That was the point I was just making. Um, in theism, we can undergo moral development and moral growth because moral values are gradually discovered, not invented. 
And that's the difference between atheism and theism. In my own life, I can say that I, I think I've experienced moral growth uh, in recent years as I've come, for example, to appreciate things like uh, the equality and equal rights of, of women in a way that when I was a younger man, I didn't. That doesn't mean, however, that I have now invented new values. Rather, I've come to appreciate moral values that I didn't recognize earlier. Similarly, I think humankind has grown morally in understanding the implications of the intrinsic value of every human being in sight of God. But the problem is that on atheism, you see, moral values are not gradually discovered. They're gradually invented or they're gradually evolved. And there isn't any objective basis for talking about genuine moral progress as opposed to simply moral change. Uh, And therefore, theism is superior in that it gives you an objective, transcendent standard that rises above the socio-cultural mass of different evolving societies and different cultural mores, which are all relative and none of which can be privileged. Well, I think that uh, morality is evolving, and it's evolving through human civilization, and its evolution depends upon a, a kind of expansion of our knowledge of who and what we are. I've been defending basically humanist ethics. Atheism is incidental to that. I brought in atheism in response to theism. But a humanist ethics takes the human as central. And what surprises me about Professor Craig is that you are anti-human. You, you ask, what is so special about human beings? What is special about human beings is that we find them special, that we are human, uh, that we express who we are as human beings. That's part of our nature. And for you to suggest that uh, without God... You cannot be human, namely moral, uh, simply uh, is untrue. But you still haven't answered this question of theism. If theism provides an ontological basis, I don't know what you mean by that, ontological foundation. That's gobbledygook. If it does, then how do you explain the fact that for so long the theists repressed women, considered them to be of lower uh, dignity and value, and that it's only in the modern world under the impact and criticism of humanism that women have been liberated. Question for Dr. Kurtz. Why is rape wrong? Rape is wrong because it violates the conscience of human beings. According to Dr. Craig, if God didn't exist, rape would be wrong. This is moral insensitivity on your part. You live, you learn by living together that uh, coercion, sexual coercion has bad consequences. Uh, It's a heinous crime. It is contrary uh, in every, virtually every civilized society has condemned rape. And it did not condemn rape because God says that rape is wrong. Rape would be wrong whether or not God said that it was uh, wrong. The good is good not because God dictates it, but because the developed moral conscience of a human being finds it so. Is morality objective? Yes. Is it relative to human interests and needs? Yes. It is objectively relative. But relative does not mean subjective. Uh, 
It does not mean caprice. It is not a question of taste. There are objective principles and values that we work out and test in human experience, uh, and they are objective. And you can criticize them, and you can show why this is so. So it seems to me that you can make a rational case, and you can appeal to uh, moral empathy and moral value to show that the effort to rape another person is a violation of, of what that person is. A basic humanist principle is that every human being is precious, is equal in dignity and value. And that is the whole basis of our democratic society. Theism did not defend democracy until the humanistic and democratic revolutions of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And so uh, the basic principles of uh, humanism are fundamental. And this is over and beyond atheism. Well, objectively relative sounds like a paradigm example of an oxymoron to me. Of course, they, if you think that human beings are intrinsically valuable, then you can talk about things that promote the flourishing of human beings. But why privilege human beings on an atheistic worldview? The psychological appeal of humanism is that we all do sense that human beings are valuable. But I agree with that, of course. But the issue is, why are they valuable on an atheistic view when atheism reduces them to relatively advanced primates? On an atheistic view, there is no reason to think that rape among homo sapiens is more wrong than rape that takes place among sharks or other animals. He says it violates the conscience of human beings. But what's the matter with that on atheism? You see, on atheism, we're just animals. And so I can't see any reason to think that we have on atheism these sorts of obligations and duties. Humanism has largely got the right ethics. We're not disputing the ethics. What we're disputing is the ontological foundation, and those are Dr. Kurtz's own words from his book, Forbidden Fruit. He does know what they mean because he thinks that you can found them in human beings without God. God is central to the debate tonight because the topic is goodness without God is good enough. And my claim is that Dr. Kurtz has not shown that there would even be goodness without God. He's got to show us that if God does not exist, nihilism would not be true. And he's never borne that burden of proof. I invite him to, to show it to us. Show us that nihilism would be false in the absence of God. I'm waiting to hear the argument. Dr. Craig, question. Both sides of armed conflicts usually invoke God to justify the goodness of their cause and the evil of their opponents. How does a third impartial observer decide which God or which good is valid? Again, this is a question of moral epistemology, not moral ontology. So it's secondary to the debate tonight. But I would say there are two ways in which you could do this. First, you would look at the basic intuitions that we have of the intrinsic value of human beings, and then you would determine whether or not these things that are commanded uh, violate or go against the intrinsic value of human beings. And that, of course, as I say, is founded ontologically in human beings being created in the image of God and therefore endowed, as the Declaration of Independence says, with certain inalienable rights by their creator. 
But that's an epistemological question. The, the, the other thing you could do is you would look at the evidence to see which God exists. And, again, that's not the topic of the debate tonight, but I'd be happy to discuss it uh, some other time to see if there's any good evidence to believe, for example, that the Christian God exists, or if Professor Kurtz is right that atheism is true. If I might return to his point about the, the suffering and evil, again, he, he didn't hear my claim. What I said is that the question of God's existence is not on the table tonight. My claim is a conditional one. If God exists, it provides a sound foundation for morality. Secondly, I said that God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil in the world, and now he must bear the burden of proof to show that that is either impossible or implausible if he wants to defend that point of view. So, uh, again, I don't think that he's been able to dispute my conditional claim, but more importantly... What he hasn't been able to show you tonight is that if there is no God, why we should think that this funny species called Homo sapiens that has evolved down here on the planet Earth somehow is invested with intrinsic moral value and has all these moral obligations and things. Where in the world do those come from in the naturalistic evolutionary scheme? It, it remains a mystery, and I invite him to explain it. Final round of questions. Dr. Kurtz, scientific genetic observations clearly show the equality of all people. Would this be a basis for the golden rule, the essential basis of morality? Well, I think we all are members of the same human family. We occupy the same planetary habitat. We share uh, common needs and interests. And we've reached a position on this planet where it is essential that we recognize that. It seems to me that we do have an obligation. And contrary to what Mr. Craig has said, I think we have obligations and responsibilities. And I think that they're deeply rooted in who and what we are as humans. I'm shocked that you are so anti-human. You're anti-human. <laughs> you say, why is a human species special? It's special because we are special. We live the full life here and now. We love and work with each other. And morality has grown out of who and what we are as human beings and the fact that we're capable of them. So that uh, the anti-human animus, you have no confidence at all in the human species, no confidence in the ability of humans to make choices, to create a better world. And we have and can create a better world. And I think now the real challenge is can we create a planetary humanism? And humanism means the fulfillment and the realization of the best of which we're capable. Humanism means that we want to create an environment in which we can realize our highest potentialities and develop happiness, not only for ourselves, but for all fellow human beings. And so the principle of equality is very crucial. Yes, we have an obligation to the people in India and in Asia and Africa, in the United States, and in every part of this globe. And that seems to be among the highest obligations to develop a world community. Now you say, what's the basis of that? And I ask, are you morally insensitive? Have you no appreciation for the fact that we as humans realize 
that no person lives in isolation? Do we have to believe in an ontological foundation for morality as postulated by you in order to work out common political, social, and ethical, ethical goals? I think not. I think that ethics is autonomous, is the deepest thing related to human beings, and as a humanist, an ethical humanist, I affirm humanist ethics. Well, Dr. Kurtz is a good rhetorician, uh, as you just heard. But, of course, uh, it's atheism that is anti-human because it is atheism which reduces human beings to just another animal species on this planet. It is atheism which robs human beings of any sort of moral dignity or intrinsic worth because we're just animals. And it is simply speciesism to think that we of all these other species is somehow important, somehow more valuable. Look, the principle of equality also teaches that all cows are equal. But we eat cows. So I don't see that this principle of equality does anything to privilege human beings over other animal species. Why are these primates special rather than some other primate species or non-primate species? Moreover, it's patently clear that not all human people are equal. What does the atheist do with the mentally retarded or the people who are developmentally challenged? On the theistic view, these people are created in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic moral value. On an atheistic view, they're just defective animals, like an animal born with a a, a mutated uh, limb or uh, some other uh, congenital defect. It is atheism that is morally insensitive because it robs us of human dignity and of human value. Our last question for the evening, uh, for Dr. Craig. If you act morally in order to be rewarded eternally, isn't this just canonized self-interest? Is there any true altruistic behavior? Right. I think that that question would be correct, uh, that if the theist simply acted morally, say, to avoid going to hell or something of that sort, that that would just be glorified self-interest. And that wasn't my argument, of course. For the Christian theist, I can speak for myself here, the motivation is a response of love to God, who is the source of all love and goodness. And one wants to live a life that is pleasing to God. One wants to allow God's love to transform you from the inside out and to allow his love to flow through you to other people who, whom he loves. And as a Christian, I believe, love so much that he gave his only son to die for them. So that the Christian's motivation for leading the moral life is a deep gratitude and inner transformation of the life of God working itself out through him in relation to his fellow man. Um, By contrast, on the atheistic view, well, and and let me say this, the, the point about moral accountability is that it means that our moral choices are significant. They make a difference for all eternity. Whereas on the atheistic view, you see, there is no moral accountability. Self-interest is all that's left on the atheistic view. We're just animals struggling to survive, and in the survival of the fittest, uh, you better look out for number one. 
And that's why, as Friedman said, whom I quoted, an ethic of compassion is incompatible with the principle of survival of the fittest. If survival of the fittest is true, if, if that is all there is, is just evolutionary sociobiological evolution, then it is all about looking out for, number one, self-interest, and uh, you can forget about uh, living for others. The absence of moral accountability from the philosophy of atheism makes any kind of an ethic of compassion a, a hollow abstraction. It has no meaning because our choices are ultimately morally insignificant. It doesn't matter how or what we choose. It does matter how and why we choose, and it matters very deeply to us, and we feel accountable to other human beings. We know that as we meet other human beings and deal with them and make sacrifices to them, that this is basic to life. So you've minimized the whole basis of human choice and human decision-making of the quest for justice and virtue and goodness and uh, the fair society. You've undermined that entirely. You say you're a Christian, but you did not answer. What would the Christian do for non-Christians who don't accept it? You say oh, you are a Christian, but how would you deal with the Koran and the ethics of Muhammad, which is in competition with the ethics of Christianity? The ethics of Muhammad provides heaven and paradise and 72 virgins if you become a martyr. Why should we accept Christianity based on the Bible and not the Koran, believed by 1.2 billion people, based on a different revelation? We have to go beyond revelation. We have to go beyond your confession of faith. We have to deal with the human condition on this planet now in a realistic sense, not look back to the past, but look ahead to the future. This stack contains the questions that we did not get a chance to talk about. And President Needler is going to say something about this stack in a few moments. But now we'd like to have the closing statements, five-minute statements, first by Dr. Kurtz. Please. Well, this has been uh, an interesting debate, and Mr. Craig says he doesn't want to debate the existence of God, but he spends all of his time attacking atheism, and I've been arguing that you can be good, and I define that as humanistic good, and you've not really dealt with humanism, which is a noble ethic which developed during the Renaissance, in which human beings became secular. They looked at this world here and now. They were not concerned about otherworldly values. They wanted to improve the human condition on the planet Earth, and they worked hard, struggled together to reform society in order to do that. But you bypassed that uh, entirely. You've said over and over again that human beings are just apes. They're human apes. We're a product of evolution, granted, but we've evolved civilization, the arts and sciences, morality and law, and all these things are for human good. Religion has a role to play in human life, but to dominate morality... And to say that morality depends upon religion, it seems, goes contrary to the modern world. The modern world says that human beings are independent, that they can determine their own existence, 
that they can develop science and technology, that they can develop social institutions which would improve the human condition here and now. Now, what is humanist morality concerned with? It's concerned with the basic moral decencies, principles that have evolved over a period of time and that are recognized by civilized society. It's concerned with developing the excellences of the good life. How can I achieve the good life? How can I achieve happiness here and now? The love of God is the love of God, which you hold on the basis of faith. But the love of men and women is the human love and the effort for each individual to achieve a creative, exuberant, exciting life is very basic. Is living your life here and now. Life is like a work of art, and you can succeed. You can achieve a significant, meaningful life without belief in God. And when life is over, it's over, but yet it was a full life, and that is very important. What permeates human morality and humanism is our sense of responsibilities to human beings and our effort to develop human institutions which will enhance, ameliorate, and improve the human life and the human species. At the dawn of the 21st century, we can use our best talents to create a better global civilization. We can transcend the ancient animosities and hatreds. We can work out together new international institutions. We can use technology, the information revolution, biogenetics to improve the human condition. And these things are within the power of human beings, and they can be done, and they ought to be done. But if they are to be done, they presuppose a commitment to critical inquiry, reason, not faith in an ancient God, not belief in my religion, but critical intelligence, uh, the use of uh, inquiry in all areas of human life, that provides a promise and opportunity. This great college is based upon inquiry, and the whole of modern world is based upon inquiry. And it seems to me that we need new inquiry to develop new values and to use our best ability, our best intelligence, and our best goodwill to move ahead. Now, I said at the very beginning that there were millions of Americans who were skeptical of your religious beliefs and of other religious beliefs, and yet believed deeply in morality. And you conceded my point when you said that, yes, you can be good and virtuous without belief in God. That point has to be made in America today. And we call upon our fellow citizens in America to tolerate the non-believers in your midst, the scientists and poets and artists and architects and ordinary men and women who want to live a full life, who love their family, who love their wives, who are good citizens and believe that they can be and believe that they can do so. And it seems to be unprejudiced, unfair to claim that unless you believe in God ontologically, whatever that means, and I've taught metaphysics, unless you believe in God as the foundation, you cannot be good. I think that is basically wrong. It is possible to be good, your neighbor, your daughter, your son, your friend, your colleague. There are millions of us out there, and it seems to me we want to affirm the ethics of humanism. We're skeptical of religion, 
but yet we think we have a voice in America. And I thank this institute for allowing me to express that voice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Kurtz. Now, Dr. Craig, a final statement from you. Well, I trust that you've been able to see this evening that the debate has not been about belief in God or its necessity for the moral life, nor has it really been about theism. If you've been perceptive, you've seen that the debate tonight is really about nihilism. This is the unseen guest this evening that Dr. Kurtz has to ward off and that he doesn't want to talk about. Namely, if theism is false, humanism doesn't win by default, friends. If theism is false, you've got to ask yourself, why wouldn't nihilism be true? What proof do you have that nihilism is not the truth? I argue tonight, first of all, that if theism is true, you have a sound foundation for morality, moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. Dr. Kurtz has not disputed a single one of those points this evening. I've been taking careful notes. All he's tried to do is introduce red herrings like, what about the ethics of Muhammad? What about other religions? And so forth. Questions of moral epistemology, which are secondary. I said I'm willing to put, stake my claim on Christian theism. If Christian theism is true, then you have objective moral values, duties, and accountability. And I'll be very happy another time to talk about whether or not there are good reasons to think that Christian theism is true rather than, say, Islam. I think there are very good reasons to think that. Secondly, though more importantly, if theism is false, we've been shown no sound foundation for morality. What is the basis of objective moral value, moral duties, and moral accountability? He tries to claim that I am depreciating human beings, when in fact it is Professor Kurtz who is depreciating the value of human beings, because it is atheism that regards human beings as mere animals and cannot provide a basis for moral obligations among these animals. So all of my statements about human beings lacking intrinsic value are conditional statements. They are, if atheism is true, then these conclusions follow. And Dr. Kurtz has done nothing to refute those conclusions. In a recent address to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, Dr. L.D. Rue, confronted with the nihilism of modern man, boldly advocated that we deceive ourselves by means of some noble lie into thinking that we in the universe still have value. He claims that the lesson of the past two centuries is that intellectual and moral relativism is profoundly the case. The result of such a realization, he says, is that the quest for personal fulfillment and the quest for social coherence fall apart. This is because in the absence of God-given values, each person must create his own set of values, thereby undermining the moral cohesiveness of society. So what can you do in such a predicament? Well, if you're to avoid what Rue calls the, the madhouse option, where everyone simply pursues self-fulfillment without regard to social coherence, and avoid the totalitarian option where social coherence is imposed by the state at the expense of personal fulfillment, then he says we have no choice but to embrace some noble lie that will inspire us to live beyond selfish interests and so voluntarily achieve social coherence. A noble lie, he says, is one that deceives us, tricks us, 
compels us beyond self-interest, beyond ego, beyond family, nation, and race. It is a lie because it tells us that life is infused with value, which is a great fiction, and because it tells me not to live for my own best self-interest, which is manifestly false. But without such lies, Rue concludes, we cannot live. Humanism is a noble lie. It is what Professor Kurtz has called a delusional system, a way of kidding yourself in the face of unbearable consequences. Unable to stare the nihilistic consequences of atheism squarely in the face, humanism looks the other way, pretending not to notice the darkness, not to feel the impending chaos, hoping that everything can go on as it was before. But the specter of nihilism still haunts us. It will not let us go. Having once let go of God, we can no longer fool ourselves by a cheery and baseless humanism. If God is dead, man is dead too. Dr. Craig and Dr. Kurtz, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I now turn the meeting over to President Needler. Thank you very much, Professor Michalak. Um, as we close this evening, I would just like to share with you all um, my view, and I'll, I'll put this forward as an absolute. I'm going to claim privilege, presidential privilege here. Uh, so for all you theists, atheists, and nihilists, put up with it. Um, when we first thought of this series of debates without being able to describe exactly what we were trying to achieve. I think we were dreaming of something like tonight, when there would be a thoughtful, very meaningful exchange uh, that perhaps the Marcus of Queensbury would not have been totally upset, and that at the end we would know that we had not all come to a common ground but that we had all heard things that were very important for us to hear and started thought processes that we must continue. That's the purpose of our Center for Liberal Arts and Society. That's the pur purpose of the Bonchek Institute. And I think that's going to be the outcome of this evening's debate. We count on it, that it will. And Professor Mikulak showed you that group of cards, uh, probably 50 or 75, questions that we're not able to be asked tonight, they're going to be part of the basis for a series of follow-on activities here on campus that will be announced shortly uh, because we clearly cannot uh, let this uh, ember that has been lit tonight uh, go out. So on behalf of Franklin and Marshall College, I want again to thank our debaters, Dr. Paul, Craig, uh, Dr. Paul Kurtz and Dr. William Craig, for doing such a wonderful job in bringing to life the concept uh, of this Bonchek debate. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Stanley Mikulak, the, the director of the Center for Liberal Arts and Society, the administrator of the Center for Liberal Arts and Society, Suzanne Farmer, Deans Volker and Owens, and the doctors Lawrence and Rita Bonchek, all of whom 
contributed vital parts to this evening's very, very successful event. And I especially want to pay tribute to our audience, a very serious and thoughtful audience, clearly. The questions were excellent. We look forward to taking advantage of what those questions will give us for the coming weeks. And frankly, we hope that you will come back to the campus if you are from off campus and join us for some of those continuing activities. I would also invite you to email us, write us, or call us with suggestions for future debate topics, if you would, because clearly you would be a wonderful source of such suggestions. With that, I will call this evening to a close, and thank you all for being here. And again, please join me in thanking our wonderful debaters.